You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Doug and Greg Stokes with Lanyap Podcast, a Stokes Family Office production. We're joined by a very special guest this week, Professor Peter Raschuti the famed Tulane professor and founder of the Birkin Road program. Professor Rashudi was also a professor of mine while I was in business school at Tulane and in the Birkin Road program. He's been a speaker with us in the past. Professor Rashudi teaches classes on finance, investments, valuation, equity research, financial modeling, and financial analysis. And the Birkin Road program is one of a kind and a fantastic intro to equity valuation for business school, undergraduate, and graduate candidates. We're excited to have Professor Rashudi on board for this conversation. He's an absolute character and a pleasure to speak with. And we were just talking before the we hit record about how Birken Road is back in person. And so just remind us and just listeners who are not familiar with Birken Road, what is the Birken Road program and why is it unique to Tulane? Thank you. Thank you, Doug. And uh, thank you, Greg. 29 years ago, I started the program. I was the assistant state treasurer in Louisiana. I used to manage all the state's money. And I noticed that uh, the local companies, smaller companies in the South, had very little exposure to Wall Street. And yet I was teaching it part-time at Tulane and saw all these really smart people that wanted some experience. So we put it together as Birkenrod Reports as a course. And what I do is every year I take 200 students, I divide them up into teams of five, and they're each assigned a single small cap underfollowed company headquartered in uh, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, pretty much the deep, deep South. And they write an investment research report on this company that we call Stocks Under Rocks. They're companies that generally don't get much attention from Wall Street. You know, we're a long way from Wall Street. We're, heck, we're under, we're below sea level. Don't get a lot of people like that. So they go out and they visit with the company, spend the day with the CEO, the CFO. They have site visits. They've been to offshore oil rigs and steel mills and chicken processing plants. They all have very interesting experiences uh, from that. I think the thing I'm most proud of is that 1,100 of them have moved on to jobs in the investment business, just like yourself, Doug. That's the psychic income from uh, doing the program. We were named the number one experiential learning program in the world a few years ago, and it's been terrific. And our big conference, which you can imagine the last couple of years, in 2020, which I was last speaking with you, we just had to cancel the whole thing. I did a little monologue for the website. 2021, we did virtually, which, you know, you lose a lot in networking, but I thought it came out really well. And we had about 1,200 viewers. And then this year, ta-da, we're going to try, uh, try to go back live again. And a lot of people are pretty excited about that. Our keynote speaker is Tom Lee, who was basically the guy that invented private equity. We have some new companies under coverage, uh, three or four new companies, and pretty excited. And the other thing is this is the first year in a couple of years that the students have been able to go out physically and see the companies. You know, we're the first weekend at Jazz Fest. So when Jazz Fest said they were going hell or high water, we were going hell or high water. <laughs> so the concept, I think, is super interesting of, and you wrote a book on this, Stocks Under Rocks. Can you just explain really what that means and why this is just a really interesting component of the Road program? I just want to talk about analysts following Apple, for example, versus what you guys are looking at? Oh, yeah. You know, you look at an Apple, there's probably 90 analysts that are following the company. And if you become the 91st, the odds of you contributing any, any real value is, is nil. But the companies we can find actually have uh, 
little or no coverage. And that's surprising to most investors. You know, they, you always hear in college that, uh, you know, it's the efficient market and everything's been found out. But if you get into the little ones, you're really not. I mean, we visited companies where there's been a sign out front that has said, uh, welcome Birkenrode analysts. Nobody's come to see these people in five or six years. They're like, oh, get the donuts. You know, they're here. And there really is, in fact, it's getting more and more so as you're getting fewer and fewer analysts, uh, more and more companies are just stocks under rocks, orphan companies. So it's a win-win for they need the coverage and we need the experiential learning. So one thing that's changed, Doug, has been we used to have for 20 years, we had the Birken Road Mutual Fund that was run by Hancock Bank. And they just decided to get out of the whole mutual fund business and they sold them all off to Federated. So those assets went into a small cap fund at Federated, but we have nothing to do with them. So that was a little sad, but it really hasn't changed the program at all. And I think the real value is in these small companies. You know, we've had 55 companies bought out since we started. Uh, the most recent one is the one I'm saddest about totally is Sanderson Farms accepted a buyout. And not only were they run by great people, not only the stock went up like 11 fold since we started falling, but of course it was the coolest field trips. And that's, uh, <laughs> that's where the real sadness comes in. Doug, what company did you cover when you were in the program? I covered Iberia Bank at the time, which was which was acquired. Absolutely, that's the same story. It wasn't part of my thesis, though, and I think I missed. <laughs> I think I missed my price target by about fifty percent. But other oh, than that, it, that's why God invented erasers. Uh, there's uh, we can uh, we can uh, we can do that. The uh, yeah the and in fact we're picking up things. Hey, here's a good example. Of what people don't when they think the markets are efficient. We just picked up a company. Uh, we just picked up the largest Louisiana-based company, largest Louisiana-based bank. Do you know who that is? No. No, and nobody does. It's Origin Bank in Ruston. You know, Hancock's technically based in, you know, Mississippi and such. So the largest Louisiana-based bank is up there. Very well-run bank. We're heading up there in a couple of weeks. I don't know if you've ever tried to get to that part of the state, but it's impossible. You'd take 10 to Texas and then 49 north. It's like about five and a half hours, but you know, it's funny because at 64, I'd say, let's do a Zoom call. But you know, when you're 20, you think that's a great adventure. So they're driving <laughs> driving up there. My only experience in Ruston is I evacuated through there for Ida with a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and an eight-month pregnant wife. But other than that, I haven't been. Oh, wow. I can now have you stay at a branch in Ruston as a, <laughs> of the bank. And it's, a, you know, Origin's a good example. There's not a single soul that follows that bank. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, well-run, it's just, just too far from anything. And the last time we spoke, and for those that are clients of ours, you saw this conversation, this was May of 2020, and we're both, I, th I think we were both sitting at home right. uh, and discussing what was going on in the world. But right at the time, this was immediately in the aftermath of the CARES Act and a lot of the federal stimulus that was coming into the market from the Federal Reserve and from Congress. And what you had said at the time was, I'm a little bit worried that this is going to cause some inflation in the economy. And so here we are, we just had our latest inflation print of seven and a half percent CPI. If you look at other areas of the market in that basket, obviously things are more expensive, used cars, for example. But that was a pretty prediction at the time. I'm sure you've made some that haven't been so, oh, absolutely. so accurate. But let's just talk about in that two-year period and maybe looking forward, where are you seeing things economically and in the markets? Well, I, I think that was probably the natural fear was inflation because you were 
overstimulating the economy. And it was going to be fine until the economy itself turned on its own. And then you had to really dance for a while. We're at that dancing period right now where they're trying to raise rates to uh, stave off inflation because the economy itself has got its own footing and it probably doesn't really need that stimulus. So you get two things. You've got the Congress and the CARES Act stimulating the economy fiscally, and then you've got the Fed trying to rein things in on the monetary side. I'm very much an optimist on this. You've got to admit, though, if the Fed can stick a soft landing here, we all ought to just send them, you know, king cakes or something like that, because it's this is very difficult. They're trying to keep the economy rocking and keep inflation below, you know, two or maybe 3%. I think they'll be able to do it. I think the inflation you're seeing now is not going to last. I think by the end of the year, you'll see inflation levels down to about two and a half percent. You're going to see GDP start to move to a regression to the mean. And unemployment, even though the unemployment numbers are absolutely crazy now, you have no faith in them whatsoever, that'll go down a bit. The big problem is that, you know, everybody my age <laughs> thinks that, you know, the reason we have uh, people aren't going back to work is, you know, they're all 25 years old and playing video games in their parents' basement and saving up for a new tattoo. But that is not really the case. There's certainly some of that. But the big thing is that before COVID, we're having 10,000 baby boomers retire every day. And, you know, what COVID did almost in every instance is it just sped up a trend that was already there. So you had people, 10,000 people, baby boomers retiring every day. And then you're home, you know, you've got some time, you're starting to enjoy things, maybe getting to know your family since you've been working so hard for so long and you liked it. And it said, well, you know, I was going to retire at 67, 65 would be a good year too. And, and then of course, your the value of your real estate's gone up because of these low rates, your stocks, your bonds, you feel financially like you could go here. And so if you look at other trends that really have just picked up, they were heading that way. And it was online buying. That was certainly uh, the case. We've got the, the baby boomers retiring. That's the, certainly the case. Working from home. It wasn't a big thing before COVID, but it was happening and it was growing. So it's just, we haven't changed course at all. We just sped up the progress. Right. The other thing I saw and that leads me to believe that inflation is going to normalize, I saw yesterday that the population growth in the United States was only like 0.1% year over year. So I think the long-term demographics lend themselves to a disinflationary environment as well too. I think technology as well too is going to exactly. make goods and services less costly to provide. And I think that's also disinflationary. So I agree with you that this particular phase is probably going to be a year out. Inflationary rates may not be as high as they are today. And you know, I know this is going to sound a little bit racy, but uh, we're, we're at a 38-year low of having babies. I mean, that is phenomenal. I thought, maybe this is just the way I, I thought, because of COVID, we'd have more babies because there was you know, nothing else to do. But that was not the case. I also thought in September, the situation with people not wanting to go back to work would change. And it didn't. That was not something that occurred. It was, uh, you know, I thought, you know, that you basically had people going back to school and parents would say, I can get out of the house now and go back to work. But that really didn't happen. But it will happen somewhere this year. So we'll, uh, we'll see. There's one company we follow called Crown Crafts. They're actually the largest. Uh, let me move move over here a little bit. Towards, I don't know what they're they're digging up our streets, which is something that is completely understandable by any <laughs> by any New Orleanian. It is Mardi Gras. There's a lot to be proud of, but you need an SUV just to get around. That's right. Yeah, I know we follow a company called Crown Crafts. They're the largest maker of baby bibs in the world and juvenile kind of things. 
So I think that's a good example of, you know, people that really were looking forward to, to more birth and haven't been able to see it yet. That is hugely dangerous, by the way. We're joking around about not making more babies. But if you take a look at countries like Japan and Italy that are also difficult to immigrate into and people aren't having babies, you're lowering the level of working age people. And that's that's terrible for the economy. It's, uh, in fact, okay, I'll use this term. I, people don't like to hear it, but Social Security is really a Ponzi scheme. And Charles Ponzi was a uh, Italian financier from Boston, like myself. So, but I think that's really where it all it all <laughs> comes together. Uh, waiver, but you know, if you look at it and you take away the, the terminology a little bit, you have all these people retiring, and you need young people to you know build up the system at the bottom. So it is a real problem, and particularly since we basically cut off immigration, which seems kind of crazy to me because. At the low end, the some of the immigrants coming in are doing jobs we didn't want to do. You know, if you look and of course, if you live in New Orleans, you know, heck, we would still be underwater if it wasn't for immigrants, you know. So it's um and uh, at the top end, you see my students at Tulane, and they're doing jobs that maybe Americans can't fill in those numbers, whether it's medical or technology or financial services. So we need to come up with an immigration plan. Otherwise, you know, we'll look like those other countries, which is really bad. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if you look at Japan, we're basically a few years behind the Japanese model in terms of financial support from the federal government. And they've been doing whatever they can to have any form of inflation through essentially quantitative easing and zero percent interest rates. And they can't have any economic growth. I mean, it's just they can't do anything to get the economy stimulated. And a lot of that's due to an aging population and a lack of immigration, as you said specifically around working age population, older people are not borrowing money to go do different ventures. They've saved. They're more conservative about spending. Uh, it's the younger people that are providing the economic output that are going to banks and getting loans that are you know increasing the velocity of that money to increase inflation. And so, yeah, I think we're in a real tight spot there if we can't do anything to increase either immigration or population growth through the other way. The interesting thing you said about the high end of the the immigration piece is if you look at just these technology companies and who are running these technology companies now, just massive amount of high quality immigrants from Southeast Asia, China, et cetera, that are the ones that are really taking America to that next level. So I think that you're exactly right. Uh, increased population growth through you know, having more children or opening the borders to more immigrants is really a solution here, or else we fall into that Japanese trap. Oh, yeah. And you know, 40% of all companies in the Fortune 500 were started by immigrants or their children. So, and that's really surprising to people. Uh, 25% of the nation's physicians are foreign born. You know, when you think of what happened during uh, COVID, the other thing is funny, we talked about Japan. We, tend to follow Japan. They're very innovative and such. And in the late 80s, they were really cut. Their model was dominating the world. And that was uh, just-in-time inventory, which was very cool. And it raised earnings per share. But it really came back to bite us during COVID. You know, if you do just-in-time and all of a sudden the, the ships are all backed up outside of Los Angeles, it really, really hurt. You didn't have much in the way of uh, inventory. By the way, that good example of that, why I think things are getting better. You know, around October, that peaked, all the ships weren't be able to come in. You know, the real problem there is, by the way, is there's 90,000 openings for truckers. So that's what I wanted to talk to Doug and Greg about is if you wanted to go to truck driving school, a lot of openings. And 
So uh, this money management thing, you know, it's just a fad. So it's uh, it's, uh, (laughs) that's exactly right. Yeah. So, but here's a good example. There's a thing called the Baltic Dry Index, which is pretty esoteric, but it's the cost of leasing a freighter, you know, with all these goods, and it has been cut in half since October. So that peak crisis is really over. And you know, I think there's actually a chance that inflation goes lower than we think it is. And I hate to say this, but almost negative because all these companies are coming out of the woods right now and they're saying, I will never, ever, ever go through that again. So they're reloading inventory to levels they haven't had before. And you could very well have too much of everything. So this is a tough time to be operating. (laughs) No, I think that's right. And if you look at, we're here mid- February having this discussion, but if you look at what the market is now pricing in from an interest rate increase perspective, there's right now the highest probability event for the Federal Reserve's reaction to this inflationary spike is seven interest rate hikes this year. And I think the big risk there, and you mentioned a, a soft landing by the Federal Reserve, but their big risk is really overshooting the interest rate increases so that you've basically inverted the yield curve if inflation comes way down. Right. That's always a signal of a recession. So you got to be very careful. You don't get that inverted yield curve. I have utmost faith in the Federal Reserve. They did a recent survey that uh, 40, I guess a couple of years ago, 43% of Americans didn't think the Fed was doing a good job, which is fascinating because I don't think a quarter of 1% have any idea what the Federal Reserve does. You know, it's a, they think it's a wildlife refuge or a a bourbon or something like that. And and now I have friends and former students of the Fed. They're this, uh, you know, they're smarter than me. They're better dressed. They have less body fat. We should never have the politicians running the Fed. That is about one of the most frightening prospects out there. It's, uh, you know, press conferences like it. It's recently come to my attention that uh, some of our imports now come from other countries. You know, it's uh, we don't need that leading our <laughs> economy. So, <laughs> so. During the March, April, May of 2020, they did a fantastic job. I remember one of the things that they did that was unprecedented was they started buying corporate bonds during that period yeah. of time. And that was one of the things that I think would like kind of turn the dial in terms of the market. I remember we couldn't, we had clients that had individual corporate bonds that we could not sell. When the Fed stepped in and added some liquidity into that market, things really started to normalize. And so I think they really do get a bad rap. And in terms of adding some stability to the financial markets during times of crisis. They did a really fantastic job in that period. I agree, Doug, uh, Greg, and I think we'll do it again. You know, it might be a little bumpy between here and there, but I just don't think people are going to be talking about inflation as much. My dental hygienist told me that inflation would go out of control. I, I don't think that's a good sign. There's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> although she does a great job on teeth, but I think that was a little concerning, so uh, disconcerting. So we're. I want to move from a you know, potential you know, global or national issue in, in inflation and focus more where we all live in New Orleans. And, and when we're speaking now, there's a lot of angst about what's going on in New Orleans economically and, and from a crime perspective. But I just want to get your thoughts. If you're talking about an economy that could not be hit harder from a pandemic, I can't think of one worse than New Orleans. So whether it's you know, just general trade and tourism, oil and gas, et cetera. What, are you, what is your take on what's going on in New Orleans right now? You're absolutely right, Doug. We were just uh, mauled. I was on a committee, the mayor's committee, to try to get the city back open. And the only one we could compare it to is Las Vegas on the tourism side. And we're the largest 
port in the world by tonnage, South Louisiana. So that didn't help. And oil and gas prices basically, well, they fell below zero. You couldn't have written a worse, uh, worse script. Now you've got two other situations. You have all the streets dug up and the roads, which is great, you know, if in the longer term, because it's stopping us from flooding and all that. But in the interim, it's just a, I have to factor in another 10 minutes just coming back home at night. And I work at Tulane, which is about, you know, half a mile from here. So that is, that's very sad. But, but my new GPS actually tells me about road construction, which is great. She seems very busy as uh, this <laughs> GPS lady. But the crime is really, really bothersome. That's the one. He can joke about all the rest of it. But, and I don't know what we're going to do there. I think one of the big problems we have in the country is tremendous income inequality, wealth inequality, economic opportunity inequality. And I think that's leading to a couple of big trends. First of all, you see it in the inner city where those, even though there's a lot of service jobs, they just don't feel like they're going to get a shot at life. So they're willing to you know, take huge risks and all that. And when you go to the rural areas, one of the reasons the country has kind of been split in half here is the rural areas have been just clobbered in here because you know, manufacturing has disappeared and that's not only hurt incomes, this is going beyond the pale here, but it's also hurt a lot of men who just don't feel as masculine because they can't bring home that paycheck and they're not the breadwinner and all of that. So I think that's kind of what's led to these uh, two different USAs. I mean, I really, there's some parts I don't even recognize my country, really. It's what's going on. And yeah, I think those trends are going to have to change. You know, if you look at those places in the rural areas that they're waiting for, and in fact, you know, I'm not going to get political, but the last administration sort of implied I could get those jobs back and get those companies back. And they're never coming back. You're not going to make Christmas tree ornaments in uh, Des Moines. It's just not going to happen. So you've got to have new training. You've got to have it on advanced manufacturing. You've got, you take advantage of this, of all the online part. Maybe you don't have to live where your company is and such, but, but just by taunting them isn't going to really make the change. The change is going to have to it's going to cost a fortune for corporations and the government, but somebody's got to make that change. They've got to retool people. And the only thing that can beat the United States is splitting it in half. And I'm not saying it's going to happen. Anybody that's bet against the US since 1776 is lost and they'll continue to lose. But yeah, I think just a lot going on. Oddly enough, though, I think there's some huge opportunities in the market. You know, I think the big techs have kind of you know, gone as far as they could possibly go. They're selling at huge multiples. You know, give is a good example. The S&P 500, I think, is selling at oh, something around 24 times earnings. But if you took out those big six, you know, Facebook, Microsoft, it's selling at about 17 and a half times earnings, which is about average. So it's being held up by that big group. And I'm in favor of indexing, but everybody is indexed the S&P 500, which is totally dumb. Those six companies at the top make up 25% of the index. So I think indexing in other asset class, small cap, mid cap stocks, uh, international, they just look flat out more inviting. On the international side, I think the average American has 90 to 95% of their money domestically. And yet 50% of all stocks are actually non-US. And these countries are growing faster. Their companies within those countries are growing faster. No doubt at all, they're bumpy. And you know, you have China making big statements and all of a sudden their markets and our markets start falling apart. But this, we're leaving a lot on the table, I think. We're kind of parochial. Right. And I think also from a demographic standpoint as well, too, you have oh. young populations there that are having Absolutely. babies. There's a lot of immigration that it lends itself to like long-term economic growth. 
Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about cutting off immigration at the top, you know, <laughs> I probably get some letters about this. But the reason we won World War II is the immigrants we brought in. I mean, that's the Manhattan Project, everything else. So we've been a nation of immigrants and we've been so fortunate because we're so free, we can attract them. And we just got to start opening that up. It's really tough. I'll tell you for students that I have, you know, they're number one in their class, but it's a really Byzantine plan to try to get uh, citizenship in the U.S. So we'll have to see, but put me in the uh, optimistic pile. I want to go back to what you said about the indexing, because I think that that's absolutely right. If you look at under the hood a little bit, especially the types of companies that you're looking at, which is if you're in the deep south, it's traditional old old economy type companies. So it's banks, it's oil companies, it's chicken processing plants, et cetera. These companies, if you go and look at, let's call it small cap or micro cap value side of the market, which is generally the the regional banks and oil companies, they're trading at like nine and 10 times earnings and are growing. The world is in love with tech right now. And and that's uh, come back down to earth a little bit. These companies are, are not going away. I don't think that the actual economics of those businesses, there is a big move to what's called ESG now, which is basically a move away from, in in this area of the world, a move away from fossil fuels. But the world runs currently on fossil fuels. And so these companies that are still in that particular space are not going away anytime soon if they have good, good fundamentals. So I think that's exactly right. I think indexing is, we're big proponents of it. But uh, if you're just doing market cap weighted S&P 500 and ignoring the rest of not only the country, but the rest of the globe, you're missing major opportunity. And, you know, one other thing is we have uh, every, well, we didn't have it for a couple of years, but twice annually, we have the offshore oil lease that actually that auction happens here in New Orleans. And it told a big story because what happened is the numbers were pretty good. You remember President Biden tried to stop the lease and then the judges over through it. So a lot of people thought, a lot of these oil companies thought, well, maybe this is our last shot. So, you know, maybe we'll get real excited about bidding and such. But if you look at the numbers came in pretty good on a gross raw basis. But if you look at it, most of the action was in the shallow water, which is really all natural gas. So I think the powers that be at these energy companies are saying that natural gas really has a better future than oil does. And in fact, very few deep water leases were, were done. Just think of if Doug and Greg were running a big oil company, which might happen any day here. You'd say to yourself, okay, I'm going to pay a lease and then I'm going to drill in the deep water, which is going to cost at least a billion dollars. And if all goes well and I find, make a big find, it's going to take me from the lease to the time that oil goes to the market over five years. And, you know, you guys have business backgrounds. You imagine spending a billion dollars and saying, well, we'll get a product in five years. What will we get for that product? I don't know, a dollar, $200. You know, imagine imagine an MBA signing off on that. So, and the other thing that was interesting, this is uh, in the attention to the shallow water, not only natural gas, but there's some people that believe that those shallow water properties may be gathered up because of the prospect of putting wind turbines out there or carbon sequester under the ground. So, And of course, you see the big oil companies putting more and more money into uh, renewables as well. So I don't see a big, I see this as a temporary spike in oil prices, but these smaller companies, they can make money at lower levels than this, but I don't think you have to see, you know, in the 90s. It's, it's funny, most people don't. <laughs> the joke I always hear is that people saying, you know, I, I hear a lot of problems, you know, with the oil market, but, you know, fortunately, my car runs on gasoline. <laughs> So it's on me. It's on me. 
So yeah. uh, <laughs> you bring up an interesting point because there's been a lot of talk in the New Orleans community in the last several months around a transition in Louisiana away from being a heavy oil state to a renewable state and making investment around that. I wonder if that's pie in the sky or if that's actually attainable for Louisiana to be the model renewables state in the union. I wonder what your thoughts are there. Yeah, you know, we had us. Senator Cassidy come speak at Tulane not long ago, and he was talking about how we should be the leader in carbon sequester, you know, and just take that what nobody wants and being able to put it under the ground on that side. And then the wind turbines out there, I mean, you hear a lot of things, I'm not sure all of it makes sense, but you've got thousands and thousands of abandoned wells out there that, you know, maybe they could put something on top. One of the interesting companies we follow is Gulf Island Fabrication, which may end down in Homa. And they make the plat the the base for those oil platforms you leave out there. I don't know when it happened, but they realized that they would become the same base for all these wind turbines. So if you look at how, what's going on around Martha's Vineyard or whatever, those are made by Gulf Island because it really is the same thing. But I'll tell you the big story in New Orleans, though. There's only one really big story, and that's entrepreneurship. You know, for 11 years, I've hosted uh, out to lunch show on the national public radio here. If you ever want to listen to it, it's just, it's all archived at itsneworleans.com. But to see the energy, particularly young people that are coming to this town and starting up businesses, phenomenal. I, I give you a couple of examples. Uh, we had just before COVID, we had a woman on, actually two women, and they, at that age, 26, 27 years old, we were going to weddings every week and going broke doing it. That's kind of a common problem. You know, basically they were going to all these weddings and they noticed that you know, one of the big expenses was flowers. People spend up to $10,000 on flowers. You just throw them away. This generation doesn't want to throw things away. And so they started renting flowers for weddings. And they're really, 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 really high-end artificial flowers. Not the plastic ones your grandmother had on top of the TV. Not those. That, they were right across. We were at Commander's Palace. We always had the show. Hope to go back there. And I couldn't tell the difference right on the table. And they were doing, back then, 500 weddings a month. And what I've heard recently is you know, all these pent up weddings that didn't happen are now going to you know, make that number even bigger. Secretly, a lot of people got married, but for grandma, they need to have the, uh, the ceremony going forward. We had a show two weeks ago that if you listen to it, you would want to live in New Orleans. First of all, I think it's the greatest place in the world to live and they couldn't blow me out of here. But I had three guests. All of their companies had been bought out in 2021. There was Turbo Squid that was a uh, kind of a stock market exchange for design people for video games and movies and all. They got bought up for $75 million in 2021. Lucid, which was a company that did polling and focus groups and things like that, they got bought out for $1.1 billion. And the next company was Levelset, which is a company that has software for contractors to deal with payroll and taxes and all that because contractors got in the business to build. They didn't get in the business to mess around with that stuff. And they were bought out for $500 million. Now, you could say, oh, it's a negative because maybe some of those jobs will go away. I don't think it's, I think it's a huge positive. These are people that are going to, after about two weeks off, are going to realize they, they want to go back to work. That's the kind of people these are. And they've got six or seven other ideas in their mind. And they're going to pump that money back into the entrepreneurship community, at least a big, big part of it, which has been the missing link with lots of great ideas, but not a lot of capital. And if you go back to the Silicon Valley when it got going, that's where it started. I mean, banks are tripping over each other to loan the money now. But in the beginning, it was companies that got bought out and the founders saying, 
I a want to help the next group, but B, I think that's where I can get the best returns. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a little bit of a plug in here as it relates to Lucid, but our our brother Patrick Stokes was a former head of sales at Lucid and wow. launched his own company called Rep Data, and they now have about 25 employees trying to replicate the Lucid model of old. And so you're exactly right. There's people that are have an entrepreneurial spirit that see success of other companies that think that you know this is something that can be harnessed here in New Orleans. And so we see the people that are really the offshoot of the Lucid's level sets and turbo squids of the world really launching their own businesses and becoming successful and hiring more people and really building that entrepreneurial spirit here in New Orleans. So we'd love to see that. And that's the momentum you need. And when you start getting a lot of companies coming in, let's say in the tech space, people are more willing to move here because they're thinking, well, if this one company doesn't work out, I've already moved my family and everything. There's other things out here I, I could go to. I think that's going to make all the difference. I think the city and the state, and obviously I don't have a say in this, I was the chief investment officer for the state, but nobody really in 30 years has called me with my asking my for opinion to pump money into these companies that are starting up and bootstrapping in Louisiana. That's our best shot. And I, the next thing I say is going to sound bad, and I don't mean it that way, but it's tough to attract businesses into New Orleans because for lack of a better term, we're weird. You know, it's uh, these corporations want kind of cookie cutter places. We have a different law. You know, it's totally different culture. I had a guy, had a guy on the show once. They had just moved here. He'd been here about two months and it was a corporation from outside. And before the show, you know, the job of the host is kind of loosen people up and, you know, so they'll talk and everything. At Commanders, that was sometimes the uh, 25 cent martinis. But that, but regardless of that. So I'm chatting with him. And I said, you know, he just moved here. And I said, wow, welcome to New Orleans. This is a city of characters. And he says, yes, we have found great diversity within the workforce. And I thought, that's not what I meant. (laughs) 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 And then at the end of the show, neither of these were on air. I said, well, this will be your first Mardi Gras. And he said, yes. An employee just this week asked me if he could have the Mardi Gras holiday off, and I called corporate in Atlanta, and uh, that is not a corporate holiday. We won't be. We will stay open that day. I thought, yep, somebody else is going to explain that to you, not me. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. Well, Professor Rashidi, this has been a really fantastic discussion. Seriously, thank you so much for coming, and we'd hope to have you back at some point in the future, maybe earlier than two years from now. (laughs) Yeah. I would love that. But appreciate it. We're going to listen back to this in a couple of years and see if any predictions that were made were correct this time around. But uh, <laughs> And then we'll continue the ball rolling from there. But thank you so much for joining us today and, and appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, 
Consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.